Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. In this episode, my guest is Valerie Tiberius, the author of What Do You Want Out of Life? Valerie is the Paul W. Frenzel Chair in Liberal Arts and Professor of Philosophy at the University of Minnesota. Her books include well-being as value fulfillment, and the reflective life, living wisely with our limits. In the conversation, Valerie and I discuss strategies for figuring out what matters, goals and values, dealing with conflicting values, existentialism and becoming who you are, courage and values, wisdom and daily life, and much more. A quick note before we begin, if you're not already a subscriber to our daily meditations and courses on the art of living, I encourage you to check out Perennial Meditations on Substack. Lastly, as part of a Perennial Habits course we're running, there's a virtual meetup scheduled next week on Wednesday, May 10th, and it's on the art and practice of Stoic wisdom. I'll put a link in the show notes to register and learn more. All right, without any further delay, please welcome the wise and gracious Valerie Tiberius. Valerie, welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Thanks, it's great to be here. Thank you so much. I I appreciate you taking the time to come on. We're going to be discussing your great new book, What Do You Want Out of Life? But before we get into the book, we generally start with some sort of question around discernment. And I'm curious to ask, how did you initially discern your way into a career in philosophy? (laughs) Um. Yeah, that's a good question. And of course, it the path was set for me quite a few years ago. Uh, I think it was a combination of fantastic undergraduate teachers, really inspiring teachers in philosophy who, um, you know, mentored me and made me think that this could be a career path. And also having a father who is an academic and who, although he wasn't a philosopher, loved philosophy. He's, he's still alive. He still loves philosophy, but, um, and, and who, who, you know, with whom I really enjoyed having philosophical discussions and arguments. And, uh, so that I think made it feel like a, like a natural path. I love it. And as a philosophy professor, uh, I'm, I'm sure you're now the roles have switched and now you're mentoring young people that are maybe discerning their particular path in life. How do you think about, you know, discernment, especially at a young age of, you know, charting your course, which I guess connects with the topic of the book and things like that as well? Yeah. It, um, so I'm, I'm actually kind of interested in your focus on discernment. Or do you think of that as a kind of perception of value or you, do you have something else in mind? Well, I, I generally think about it in a similar way with your book. You know, how do we make 
wise decisions? Like we're at this particular, you know, when you think of a, a young person that is maybe in college majoring in something and, you know, oftentimes we're at a bit of a fork in the road. You know, we can't necessarily be a philosophy professor path and a veterinarian. You know, we have to discern and that can be a difficult thing to be at one of those forks in the road. How do we make a wise decision there? Yeah. And I I hope that some of the things I talk about in my work are useful for for young people, too. Um, you know, I've thought about because of how because of my own position in life, I, I've thought a lot about, you know, midlife crisis and what happens when you um you sort of get to a point in your career where you're kind of you know you're coasting a little bit and wondering what are the next steps and what do I do now uh but I do uh, as you mentioned because I interact with young people who are my students all the time I I have I thought about that age group and and I and I hope the things I say in the book are relevant to them too. The one thing that is that I that I sort of struggle with in mentoring uh young people is, you know, the world is a different place now than it was when I was their age and I worry about that for them. <laughs> I think the threat of of climate change and the kind of political polarization we have, it's it's a it's a hard time to be um, forging your, your path in the world. Um, so I'm, I'm always, you know, I, I try to talk to my students about the same kinds of considerations, like to, to sort of coach them into the same kind of discernment that I have found useful in my life and that I write about. But I'm always a little bit cautious because I feel like, well, their experience is different and I have to be, I have to be sensitive to that as well. Yeah, it really comes through, I, I think, through the book of maybe a nuanced and really thoughtful approach. I am, am fortunate to have a lot of philosophy professors on the on the podcast like yourself. And I, I, I love when you philosophy professors write for a general audience like this book is. It, there's such thoughtful, really nuanced complicated, you know, things. It, it's really a, a realistic, I think, uh, uh, approach compared to sometimes, not to completely generalize, but some of the self-help type of books you might read and it makes it sound easier than than it actually is. Thanks. You know, I really appreciate your saying that because this is, uh, I've tried to write things that are more accessible um, than my academic work, but this is the first time I've ever tried to write something that is intended to be for a broader audience. And it was hard to 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 retrain all my, you know, annoying pedantic habits in in how I write for for um for an academic press or or a or a journal, a philosophy journal. Uh but I also really, really enjoyed it. And I felt like that that effort of trying to translate pretty com complicated ideas into language that you don't need any jargon or technical background to understand was really rewarding. I, I really liked doing it. And I also think that it makes the philosophy better if you can't, mm. you can't sort of like rely on, on 
terms that you think everyone knows. You know, you can't rely on your your professional jargon. And so you have to just be really, really clear about what you're talking about, which, yeah, I, I, I it was a good process. And I'm so glad you feel like it had it bore fruit. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought you did a, a great job with it and, and glad to hear that it was a enjoyable process as well. We typically start with defining terms and things like that, as you just mentioned there, just to provide a bit of clarity for the for the listeners as we as we get into it. And a couple terms that that come up early and often in the book are are goals and values. Could you speak to how you think and maybe differentiate those two? For sure. So um, I sort of start with the perspective that human beings, if you have to think about what human nature is, you can start with the fact that we're goal seekers. We, which, and I take goals to be in the broadest possible category. Anything you want, anything you're moving towards, anything you perceive as better than where you are is a goal. So goals can include, you know, things as trivial as like, I'm going to floss my teeth every day. Um, to like, I'm going to train to run a marathon or find a marital, a marital partner or, you know, have a baby or, uh, so goals can just be absolutely, um, any desired thing. Values I take to be a special category of goals that are particularly important to us. So we, the values are the goals that we care the most about. Um, and I also think values can be, in the ideal case, values are goals that integrate our psychological states. So um, if you value like education, uh, you'll both, you know, exp- you'll be the kind of person who experiences joy when you learn new things. You'll be the kind of person who loves to uh, exercise your curiosity and to read. You'll also be the kind of person who wants to buy books and take courses and listen to educational podcasts. And you'll be the kind of person who um, plans for that, who thinks, so I, 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 education is something I care about. So I'm going to make choices and, and plans that fit that into my life. So all of those different states, those emotions and desires and those judgments about planning, um, they, when, when you really value something, they're kind of integrated or harmonious. Uh, so that's the ideal case for values. I think we don't always, sometimes our values fall short of those standards a little bit, but, um, but yeah, so values are, are special. You know, if there's anyone listening, when you think of taking the time to really get clear about your goals and values, cause I see this as, deep work. I mean, going through is really thought-provoking stuff, uh, tons of highlights and things like that through the book. But someone listening that is maybe like doing that work is maybe that's for people that are in the second half of, of life. I have more important things or maybe see it as some sort of a privileged place to be. What comes to mind, Valerie? Um. Yeah, it- you know, I, I have, I have sometimes worried about that. And there is a sense in which 
any kind of, you know, reflective exercise about what your about your values and whether you're spending your time in the right way is a privilege. Um, so people who have to worry about putting food on the table are probably not in a position where they they can um think about the values that are best for them in life because they're um they're so, you know they're suffering from deprivation of the basics um that said i don't think that this kind of reflection on values is just for an elite group so um like i think anybody who has their needs met and has a little bit of flexibility and freedom in their life which you know is <laughs> certainly not everybody especially if we think globally but it's a lot of people uh and hopefully you know i like to think if if the what is it that martin luther king said if the arc of history bends towards justice uh more people will have that that kind of liberty um and so so i think it it doesn't have to be quite as you know erudite as it sounds, you know, reflection on your values that can sound very fancy. But in fact, it, it's the kind of thing that every that people do and they think, you know, should I have a second child or should I quit my job and, and look for something better? Should I do an MBA at a night course in a night in night school so that I can improve my um, career prospects? You know, those kinds of questions all, I think, invoke um, some thinking about what we value and what matters to us. Mm. I love that. And that's a, probably a great transition into this idea of conflict. It seems like whether someone has spent the time creating clarity around goals and in in uh, values, conflict can still be there. It seems like that maybe is a universal thing when you just bring up all of these different examples and maybe there's all these forks in the roads and decisions that we, you know, are, are making. And, and conflict is a big aspect of, of the book to me. Could you unpack that a bit and why that's uh, an important yeah. idea? So on the one hand, I think conflict is inevitable. So you're not going to live a life that's conflict free, but um, there are two kinds of conflict. And when those conflicts are serious enough, they really inhibit your fulfillment. And so one kind of conflict is internal. You can have the different aspects of your psyche can be fighting with each other. So, you know, you, you, um, you love to dance, but you were taught as a child that dancing is a frivolous, dumb thing to do. And so you're conflicted about whether to take your, you know, your tap lessons. Um, that, so there's that internal conflict and, and that inhibits fulfillment because there'll always be some part of you that's frustrated. Um, it's, it'll be one, one of the competing parts or the other. And then the other kind of conflict is conflict between values. Um, so, you know, you can think about work-life balance as the kind of most talked about example of conflict. I think when people say work-life balance, they typically, when they talk about life, they typically mean family. So it's like the conflict between work and family. And, you know, 
We're not going to give up one of those things, but you can think about those values in ways that make it more difficult to put them together in the same life. Or you can think about them in ways that, um, that fit better together and results in less frustration. Um, so I think, you know, I guess the, the take home message is conflict decreases the fulfillment that I think is essential to living a good life. You can't get rid of all of it because we just are the kinds of beings who are going to have multiple values and we just can't do everything <laughs> in one life. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can reduce those conflicts um, by by figuring out what really matters to you and trying to get yourself to align with those things. Um, and also by thinking about what matters to you in different ways, like being a bit flexible about what work means and what life means when you think through that conflict. And you outline five strategies that I I think are really helpful for figuring out what matters. Uh, Introspection, lab rat strategy, guided reflection, learning from others, and exploration. Before we maybe touch on, on those, I was wondering if you could maybe speak about philosophical thinking, broadly speaking, if you will, like, you know, as philosophers, at least how, you know, I'm, I'm uh, the average lay person is, is not a, not a philosopher, even that cultivating that skill of, of, of thinking deeply and maybe with flexibility. I'm just curious if there's any thoughts that come up broadly speaking about philosophical thinking. Wow, that's an interesting question that no one's asked me before. <laughs> um, well, one thing that comes to mind, so and this is maybe this is a bit of a disappointing answer to your uh, deep question. But so my husband also has a PhD in philosophy, but he ended up um, not being he's he does educational research now. So he's more, he's a really a social scientist. And he, he often says, you know, the great thing I learned studying philosophy is how to tell when this is not the same as that. And <laughs> it is actually, it's a skill that we, you know, we try to teach our students and it, 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 to make a distinction between two different things and to keep them distinct throughout your thinking. And actually, when it comes to values, I think one distinction that's really important is the distinction between things that matter instrumentally because they lead to something else and the things that matter for their own sake. Cause I think people can get caught up with some goals that are really just purely instrumental and they sort of forget <laughs> that that's what they are. Like money. You know, I have a lot of students who you ask them what they want out of their careers and their lives and they say, well, I want to make a lot of money. And then, and then you say, what for? And they're, they're kind of like, uh, <laughs> they don't really know. I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to make a lot of money, but it's really worth thinking. You don't want money for its own sake. It doesn't do any good if it just sits there. It's got to be for something for even, even if it's just for bringing you a sense of security. Um, so anyway, I guess, I guess I think that, 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 um, 
that ability to make distinctions between things and hold those distinctions, I that's the part of philosophy that I I I think is actually quite valuable, even though it, it sounds a little bit basic, I suppose. How about for your students? I mean, someone that works with young people that are interested in in this stuff, and I'm obviously you're teaching some of these these concepts. Is it challenging, you think, for this, like the lab rat strategy, for example, when we're, and I think people can probably assume what that is, you're studying yourself from from above, if you will. If you haven't done that, it seems like that can be a, a difficult thing for, uh, maybe it's easy for some, but it can be difficult for, for others. I think you're absolutely right. And I haven't really talked to students about their experiences trying to do that. So I have talked to students about the strategy in the abstract, but I haven't talked one-on-one with students. And partly that's because in a classroom, you can't, students won't talk about their personal lives and, you know, it's, it's a bit inhibiting. So I, but I think, you know, if I think about the friends that I've talked to about this, or I think about my own experience, I think it's really something you learn as you get older. Cause I, I, I think when we're young, we have this, we have that we're sort of overconfident about our own knowledge and our ability to understand what life is all about. And to, to, we think we know ourselves so well. You know, I remember thinking like at various points, okay, now I really know. I got it figured out now and I know, I know what's what. And as I got older and I realized, well, you feel that way. And then two years later, you don't feel that way anymore and things have changed. And so there's, there's something about the experience of aging that kind of opens your mind to the possibility that like you just don't know everything and you never will. Um, and so it, it, that kind of counteracts that assumption that all I have to do to figure out myself is just, you know, look within and say, this is what I'm like. Um, Mm. I suppose, I guess it's also true that reading a lot of psychological research has made me less confident about my own introspection, you know, because psychologists do a lot of research about how we don't have very good introspective access to our own emotions, for instance. And so sometimes a better way to find out how you feel about things is to sort of pay attention to your your body and what the what the what it's telling you. But that again, you, you I, I guess it isn't age per se. It's just experience. You know, you need to have lived for a while and failed at things before you can <laughs> figure out that just sitting there thinking in your you know in your head doesn't really cut it. Yeah, another thing I I find interesting, it, it seems like in my own experience, often when some of the work of clarifying some of these values, or if I, I tend to think in visuals, if I'm at this fork in the road of, you know, what's really more more important here, it's normally in some sort of place of where we're feeling a bit of anxiety or feeling some, some sort of stuck in that seems to limit our just basic creativity to think about, oh, like, well, what else? Like in terms of the money, money is most important. Well, what else? What else? And you could just keep going. And um, maybe if we're in a completely calm state, 
where it's much easier for us to be creative and, and think of many, many different things and options and all sorts of stuff. I think that's so true. And it's, you know, it's kind of a, it's one of those unfairnesses about life that the time when we most need clarity is the time where we're prevented from getting it because we're in this emotional state that just makes us obsess about the, the state that we're in. It's, yeah, it's a, um, it's kind of a, a paradox of, of living. But I, I think you're really right about anxiety that it just, certain kinds of moods like anxiety and, and certainly depression, it just kind of pessimism, you know, and cynicism, they sort of take over and color everything. So you can't see past them. Yeah. It's another reason I, I worry about my students because there's this, you know, since the pandemic, been a kind of crisis and a lot more students are anxious and depressed than previously. Yeah. And it, it seems like um, something I maybe I maybe I bring up a, a few times on the podcast. I'm, I'm not sure, but starting small, like in terms of these forks in the road, we were talking about like these young people um, and and obviously people in the second half of, of life. I think about these things as well of big decisions this path or, or that path. Um, but that comes up a lot. Like even for this particular hour that we're connecting, you know, it's connecting here. Neither one of us are, are doing something else. A yes to this is a, is a no to something else, at least in this particular amount of time. And I'm, I'm grateful that you said yes to spend this hour because it is a special thing. It's a, it's a yes to this. And sometimes some of these smaller decisions, at least thinking about that, um, for me, it, it can be helpful. Yeah. That it makes me think of a couple of things. One is that, you know, there's so much research in, in psychology and, and also a lot of philosophical writing too about the importance of connecting with other people. And so, you know, I think saying yes to connecting with someone who, with whom you're going to have a good conversation and someone who's interested in you and what you do, that, that's a no brainer to me. <laughs> it's like, mm -hmm. um, it's, that's been a, a delightful thing about writing a book that, um, someone other than a professional philosopher wants to read is I've got to, I've, I've been able to talk to all these different people who have different perspectives. And that's just been a real, I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Um, so I think, you know, many of the decisions we make as you're, suggesting are are these smaller things we're not always deciding you know about should i move to california or t take a job in arkansas uh we're often deciding just here now do i spend my hour doing this or doing that and and i i think those those small decisions are also a place where you can make decisions that contribute to the things that matter most to you, or you can fail to do that and feel like you're wasting your life. Um, yeah. yeah. The other thing it made me think of what you were saying is uh, my dad always had this, um, he used to talk about, I know it was when he was giving me advice about my academic career. And he said, an academic career is like a tree. When you're young, you really just have like 
one branch, maybe two. It's your dissertation and the work that came out of it. And then as you get, as you develop, you know, this branch will sprout all these twigs and those twigs will grow into bigger branches and you'll have this other branch with all those twigs. And he said, like the twigs just keep growing bigger and bigger and bigger. And at some point you have to lop off a limb because you cannot do it all anymore or your tree will fall over. <laughs> um, so it, that's, I, I guess that's a metaphor that says like you make these little decisions, but they can have kind of big effects ultimately because you, you know, you decide, well, um, I'm going to investigate this new, I'm going to take on a new hobby. Maybe I actually did start taking tap dancing lessons. So, so nice. I'm going to try this new <laughs> dance class. And then if you get really into it, you're like, okay, well now I have to go to the advanced class and now I need some ballet because that would help me with my tap. And <laughs> before you know it, you're spending like 20 hours a week dancing and that could be fine, but that's a way where these little decisions can can kind of snowball into some into a big commitment, um, which can be a great thing if it's something that's good for you. But it can also be, you know, you made these little decisions and didn't think about it, and now you've got this huge commitment that <laughs> that actually doesn't fit with the rest of your life. So it's complicated. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, for those that are interested in figuring out what what matters these these five strategies did you want to touch on or is there anything that comes up around um these strategies that you think would be helpful for anyone listening looking to start thinking about what matters in their life i guess one thing i would emphasize about the what i call the lab rat strategy that you already you know mentioned where you're sort of like you're thinking of yourself as a a creature to be studied and trying to uh, get a perspective on yourself that is not the, the sort of rational narratives that you tell yourself, but instead um, gets at something underneath that. So we have a lot of nice stories about who we are and what we care about and what we want and what works for us. And some of those stories are true, but others of them are you know, bit mythological. Uh, so the lab rat strategy, what, what I meant by that, what I was trying to get at is that you need some way of getting past all the verbal stuff, all the, um, the, the hyper rational stuff. And maybe, you know, maybe philosophers have more of that than, than regular people, but I think we all have some of it. Um, to get at things like your emotional tendencies. And one of the aspects of the lab rat strategy that I, so I, I, it sort of has two parts, you know, if you're looking at an, an actual animal, and you're studying it, uh, one thing you would think about is like, what's the species? What do thing, what do animals like that need? Is it a social species? Is it a predator um, or a prey or, and the other aspect of the lab rat strategy is to think about the individual animal. Like what is this rat like compared to that other rat? <laughs> so with human beings, when we're thinking about ourselves, I think it's actually helpful to think about our 
the goals that we have just in virtue of being human. So because I think when those goals are frustrated because they're so deeply embedded in us, uh, we, the, the frustration of those goals affects us, even if we don't acknowledge the goals explicitly. So, you know, just for example, human beings, most of us are profoundly social creatures. And, um, I mean, I think one of the things we learned from the pandemic is when we don't have human interaction, uh, all sorts of bad things happen. We suffer from loneliness and isolation. And uh, so you can sort of make choices that seem good to you because of the, the, the stories that you have about who you are and what you care about that ignore some of these deep human tendencies and that's something I think we can correct by thinking about, you know, what it is to be a human being. And that, um, so social goals like c- human connection, that's one of the important ones. But we also, most human beings have needs for, um, some exploration of the world, but also some stability, um, having the freedom, having some autonomy in their lives. People are more happy in careers where they have a, have a little bit of autonomy, competence. We like to be good at something. Um, so I, I do think it's helpful to think about those just basic human motivations and goals and to ask if the values that you think you have, do they actually meet those goals? That's super interesting. I'm I'm always struck by some of these wisdom traditions that try to help us see that we're naturally good or we're naturally I think of uh something that came up on a previous episode on Confucianism of something from Mengza if I remember correctly of this story of of the well. You know, if someone fell into a well, the, a natural pull to go, you know, um, help. If, if there was a small child or a dog or something like that in the road, there's a natural pull towards, um, you know, the common good and helping. It's the sprouts, the sprouts of yeah. compassion, right? That's funny. I was just teaching my class about the Confucian um, perspective on human nature. It's kind of beautiful. <laughs> nice. In, I mean, in philosophy, in the Western tradition, actually, this is true in the ancient Chinese tradition, too. There, there have been some people like Mengzhe who think human nature is good. And then, of course, there have been the people who think that human nature is bad and the goal in life is to fight against it. Um, like in the Western tradition, Thomas Hobbes, you know, he thought human beings are selfish and short-sighted and nasty. And so, uh, we need an authoritarian state to keep us in line. And, and that's the only way, uh, to make life okay for us. Um, I guess, you know, I think, I think the positive, the optimistic people are right on this one, just based on what I've read from developmental psychology, like those tendencies to be sympathetic and to, to be compassionate towards other people's suffering and to to prefer pe- 
people who help rather than people who are mean, they start like really, really early, three yeah. to six months. They, they find evidence of those kinds of tendencies. And that makes me think it's that, that, um, Hobbes was wrong. Mengzhi was right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and we can recognize it when others, maybe violate that natural thing. I have a son that's a, a four-year-old and he can easily identify if, if someone, you know, is behaving this in this certain way in class, it stands out if, if something is, you know, unfair or somebody, you know, hits another person, um, you know, so I, I think that's a, that's a sign there as, as well. Yeah. Let me, let me ask you about this learning from others, which is one of the strategies when it comes to creating, you know, clarity around your values, what matters. What do you think about turning to a particular wisdom tradition or philosophy of life to help? I mean, does that connect with the learning from others? Someone just, I'm going to adopt this philosophy of, of life. That's really interesting. I, so I, when I talked about learning from others, I was thinking of actually like learning from your friends who can observe you and sometimes have good insights about, about, excuse me, about what you care about. But, um, and, and I was also thinking about how you could sort of learn from the example of others because you can see what they do and how they pursue their values. And sometimes that's, it's nice to have a different model. And I guess learning from the wisdom traditions could be like that, where you, you, you learn from that tradition that there's a way of life that's tried and true. Um, and that could be different from how you're doing things. So it can provide you with an option for how to be in the world that other people have found, you know, helpful. Um, so I, yeah, I, I do think, I, I, I do think that's helpful. I'm not sure that I personally have, one one problem for me with some of the philosophical traditions is that they're too general. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, you the the kinds of things that you're recommended to to do and to commit yourself in life are things that I sort of feel like, well, yeah, I I knew that already, you know, friendship and meaningful work and making a contribution to the world and health and pleasure, these things are all good and important, but how do I how do I live that? And how do I put all those things together? Do you feel like the wisdom traditions have, have benefited you? I think it depends on, you know, if there's a particular wisdom tradition that connects with you, there's something that might not be a good fit and, you know, an, another particular thing that is a good fit. But it, it does seem like if you think of the cardinal virtues, for example, and I, I know obviously you're, you know, teaching ethics and things like that. But even the cardinal virtues, say if I adopt them of courage, wisdom, um, justice, and temperance, there's still a tremendous amount of work that I feel I need to do to create clarity of 
well, what does courage look like in daily life? Uh, you know, what does it mean to be temperate? I mean, there's still so much. And that's where like these strategies of int- introspection and all of this stuff where sometimes it feels like you can just, oh, I'm following the cardinal virtues. Here's my thing. But there's a lot more clarity and thinking that that needs to take place. Yeah, exactly. I totally agree with you. So it's like the virtues are described at such a level of generality that you don't you don't know, well, justice. Okay, so what what should I like I, you know, don't steal things from people, but that's an easy one for me. Not very tempted to do that. Um yeah, you need you need to fill out those details in your life. I actually think that some some of the traditions, like I was thinking about Stoicism, also Buddhist philosophy, I, I, I have found those kinds of traditions quite useful, and some of my students do as well, because they provide a way of, they, they provide actual practices for trying to, um, orient yourself towards what really matters and not get obsessed by trivial things or by anxieties about what might happen. So I those I do think those traditions can be quite helpful for people, but in a slightly different way. They're not sort of giving you the list of things that matter, but they're they're trying to cultivate a practice where you have the right outlook towards life. Yeah. So important. I- I think it seems like, um, how do I want to say it? It's like you, when you read some of these, you know, ancient texts or, or modern on a particular idea, there's, I've, I've found, and I, and many others, I think there may be raising points or obstacles that I wasn't even really aware of. Like, you know, I mean, they've just, and I, I mean, obviously throughout, you know, history, there's a reason some of these things have have been around forever. But like one, for example, in the way of the existentialists, and and that's um, a question that I'm I'm real curious about. Some of the existentialism type of stuff comes throughout the book, but then you also part ways a little bit and you talk about radical choice. So maybe that's an example of learning something, but then still seeing where, you know, there's a potential problem and and highlighting something. Could you speak to that? Yeah, I think the, it's funny because it's as if you're following the course I'm teaching because I talked (laughs) about Mengzhe and we just talked about existentialism last week. Um, So I I think I, I share with the existentialists the thought that I mean, I don't want to put this in a scary way, but that values are created by us. There wouldn't be values if there weren't valuers. So I, you know, my own sort of background philosophical view is there aren't values out there. There's us and we essentially, it's a, you know, we make things valuable by valuing them. And the existentialists certainly agreed with that, that we create value through our choices. Um, but they did have the, the this idea of radical choice. So they, I think they thought we were free to choose anything. And I think, you know, human nature exerts more of a an influence. 
uh, they didn't think there was a nature, right? They thought, um, what is it? Um, existence before essence. That's, that's one of the catchphrases from Sartre. So, uh, we, we, we essentially create who we are through our choices. And there is not, uh, there is no essential human nature. There's nothing, um, there are no essential properties to being a human being. Uh, and I think, you know, I wouldn't want to say that there's a necessary human nature that everybody has the exact same thing and you're not human without it. That would be too strong. But I do think for the vast majority of human beings, we have a lot in common that's kind of pretty hardwired and, um, and, and is going to express itself <laughs> in, wherever it, it, it appears. Um, and that, that can sound, uh, way too strong and overly dramatic because the environment has a tremendous influence on what we're like. So it's not that I think we're hardwired to be a very particular way, but we have certain, certain innate goals, like these goals for socializing, for, for connection and exploration and stability. So I think the existentialists wouldn't sign on to that. Um, and that that's definitely one place where I part ways with them. They, you know, possibly I'm being a little bit unfair because at least Sartre and de Beauvoir thought they, well, they didn't want existentialism to mean that you could choose absolutely anything. So de Beauvoir talks about how if you're going to stand for freedom, you have to stand for freedom for everybody, not just for yourself. So it seems like they were struggling with, you know, how can we put some constraints on all this radical choice? Because mm -hmm. it seems like it could lead to something quite undesirable. Yeah, it's it's really interesting of... um like in a way, sometimes a, a phrase that that comes up is becoming who you are, and that's that's something I was thinking about as reading your book and thinking about the in the way of some of the uniqueness that we have. It's like you you talk about. Um, I like this the metaphor of the of the garden that you have. You know, there's certain just things that are maybe outside of, of your control in terms of the environment and the soil and what you can grow and all sorts of stuff. Something that's always stuck with me is um, in the documentary, uh, I think it's called Becoming Nobody, Ram Das, towards the end of it, he, he says something about like, you know, after 30 or 40 years of basically like trying to become enlightened, trying to change, you know, meditating, whatever, hundreds of thousands of hours and all sorts of stuff. And then he runs into a, you know, a friend of his and he's just like, man, you haven't changed a bit, you know, <laughs> and it's, uh, and I mean, that was his exact response. You know, he just laughed about it and, and honestly reflected that. Yeah, there are lots of things like some of the little quirks, some of the the little things about him, even after 40 years of, you know, some really extreme spiritual, you know, development commitment. It's we are who we are in, in, in a certain way, which is, I, I think, a, a good a good thing. Yeah, I think for most of us, it's a good thing. <laughs> 
I guess there might yeah, be a yeah. few people for whom it isn't a good thing. Yeah, I love that. That's that's a great story. Um, I should watch that documentary. It sounds like it would be fun. Um, yeah, he's pretty funny. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, interesting. That's good. <laughs> I guess like I I like that phrase "becoming who we are." I was just talking to a student um, yesterday, actually, about authenticity. And it, you know, I don't use the word authenticity in the whole book. As far as I know, I've never written anything about authenticity, but she saw that in my work. And I, I think she thought that, like, if you think about life as cultivating a garden and your plants are the, your values and you're trying to fit them together into a coherent whole, it is true that, you know, Lots of us, our gardens are going to look, they're going to have a lot in common. Like, you know, plants will, they'll do what they do. Um, but there will also be some differences. And I guess, I guess I think both of those aspects are really important. And people can, it, it's a mistake to emphasize one over the other. So the aspect of, you know, you're a human being. And so you need to be connected to other people, but you're also you. And so how you connect to other people and who you connect to is going to be specific to you. Um, and I, I think like too much emphasis on authenticity and me and finding myself can be a bad thing if it ignores that, well, you know, you're, you, there, there are some features of you that are like the soil, you know, you can't, you can't get rid of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, if you, if you just think, well, I'm a human being and so I should do what all the other human beings do, that's not, I think that's not a perspective we're as tempted to in our culture, but, um, it seems like it is part of our culture that we do care about the unique features of us and finding ways to express them to a certain degree. It's such a challenging thing to hold those two at the, at the same time. It makes me think of this, you know, lab rat strategy. You have a bit of a, you know, view of yourself and maybe can see some of your uniqueness, but then like as the Stoics and many other people have talked about, as you zoom up a bit, then you can, also see that you're connected with everyone else and you know everything else and and both of those are 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 true which is really challenging it it is really challenging and i i do think it's i i guess i wonder how peculiar it is to our culture for for us to be you know so invested in our authenticity and our uniqueness that we feel very challenged putting that together with the fact that we're just human. Cause if you like, if you think about those, the, the Confucian tradition and, and how they thought about wisdom, there was all this um, emphasis on the importance of your, your role as a, you know, a, a husband or a father, or I mean, they were mostly talking about men or a leader or a politician or, and, you know, performing the rituals that were associated with your place in life. Um, so it, 
at least in that tradition, it seemed like all the stuff about being a unique individual was not, wasn't really to the point. Um, yeah. So it doesn't help, I guess, for, cause we're in this culture and we have to deal with what we have. <laughs> yeah. Well, our time has flown by. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I'm grateful for your time. I've got one final question before we get to our, our wrap up question about wisdom. And I wanted to ask you about, um, courage. Sometimes I think, uh, and I experienced this myself, but when it comes to identifying a set of values, I identify, maybe I put it down on paper. These are things that are really important to me. It's, it can be a little scary because now it's like, oh, I know what matters. So if I go veering off the other way, you know, I, I know it. So I'm, I'm just curious about the courage to actually even decide and commit to a particular set of values. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, it just, uh, I don't think I have any particular insight about how to develop courage, but I, I would observe that it's one of those examples of how the virtues are always working together. Um, so you, you need, you need the courage to like acknowledge your path. You need the courage of your convictions to stand by your path. And then you also are going to need some perseverance, um, to, you know, and, and some temperance so that you're not drawn away and tempted by all sorts of other things that don't matter. Um, so I, I, I think it's a, a really nice point. I, I totally agree. It's an interesting thing of just, um, getting like deliberate and intentional, you know, ab about some of it, which was something that came up as I was going through your book, just some, some notes, like how do you get more intentional about some of these things? But again, I've really, really enjoyed it and really scratched the surface of the book. I'd highly recommend listeners uh, uh, pick it up. It's, it's well worth the read. But we've made it to this final wrap-up question. We, we generally ask every, everyone that comes on, time permitted, how you define or, or think about wisdom in daily life. So I'm curious if, you know, a friend or a student or, you know, anybody connects with you and throws that question at you. What comes to mind, Valerie? Well, so at the the most general level, I think wisdom is understanding what's good and being able to reason about how to get it. And in the domain where I have been thinking, the sort of, you know, how to live your own life domain rather than the how to be a morally excellent person, in the living your own life domain, I think wisdom is the, it's the skills that allow you to um, deliberate about and choose and then plan for the most important, the things that are most important to you, your, your deepest values. Um, so I think it's actually going to be, wisdom's going to be kind of a more than one skill, um, partly the sort of self-knowledge you need to know what matters to you and partly the ability to shift perspectives so that you're not focused on things that are trivial and unimportant, but instead on the things that really matter. So that's, that's roughly it. Not a sound bite. 
<laughs> well, beautiful. Well, thank you so much. Again, this has been great. The book is What Do You Want Out of Life? Is there anything, you know, we didn't share that maybe we should have brought up or anywhere that you might point listeners that are interested in learning more? They could go to my website. There's some information there. But otherwise, this was a fabulous conversation. I thought we covered more than more than I thought we would. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. Professor Valerie Tiberius, thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom. Thanks again. Thank you for listening. I hope you found something useful. If so, I encourage you to put what you heard into practice. You can learn more at perennialleader.com. There you'll find links to show notes, our daily email newsletter, and reading in the good life, a free weekly meetup. Until next time, be wise and be well.